Well, church, grab your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. I know it's, um, we've been here in the book of, of John 18, I think the last couple weeks. But as you know, we've been going through the various Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as we are trying to uh, sort of begin the process of what happened on the night that Jesus gathered with his disciples for the Passover. As they prayed together, they heard his final teachings, his final prayers. He prayed for us. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane. He is misjudged. He is falsely accused. And the sad part is he's betrayed. We said he was stabbed in the back, so to say. And then he's arrested. And, and we think through all that. It's like, why did they come at him the way they came at him? He was, he was so misjudged. And through all that went on on that evening, we, we now hear in the book of John chapter 18, we continue this because I want you to hear and I want you to know that God loves you. He embraces you with his love. And nothing can separate it. And what we've looked at so far, all the things that Jesus experienced, and it's like, hey, I've experienced that too. Maybe not to his degree, but we've all experienced misjudging and false accusations against us. Maybe somebody has stabbed us in the back, so to say they betrayed us. Maybe uh, in the midst of trying to help somebody, they don't understand how we're trying to help them. Through all the things that Jesus experienced, we're able to look at those stories and say, wow, he, he understands me. But now we get to the next part of the story. And again, there, this story is going to be found in three other books besides the book of John. But we're going to focus on the book of John, and then at times I'll say we'll be to Matthew. I'm going to put a lot of it on the screen for you, but please open up your Bibles and follow along there as well. So what happens is Jesus is arrested, and he's going to be put on trial. But these trials, as we're going to discover, are multiple trials, and they're all, well, let's just say they're not done by the book. First trial is with Annas, and we're in the book of John, chapter 18. We'll start in verse 12. Verse 12 of John chapter 18. So the soldiers, their commanding officer and the temple guards, arrested Jesus and tied him up. They first took him to Annas, since he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest at the time. Simon Peter followed Jesus, as did another disciple. That other disciple was acquainted with the high priest, so he was allowed to enter the high priest's courtyard with Jesus. Peter had to stay outside the gate. Then the disciple who knew the high priest spoke to the woman watching at the gate, and she let Peter in. Verse 19. Inside, the high priest began asking Jesus about his followers, what he had been teaching them. Jesus replied, Everyone knows what I teach. I've preached regularly in the synagogues and temple where the people gather. I've not spoken in secret. Why are you asking me this question? Ask those who heard me. They know what I said. Then one of the temple guards standing nearby slapped Jesus across the face. Is that the way to answer the high priest, he demanded? Jesus replied, If I said anything wrong, you must prove it. But if I'm speaking the truth, why are you beating me? Then Annas bound Jesus and sent him to Caiaphas, the high priest. Here we see Annas, who's not the official high priest, He's the father-in-law to Caiaphas, who is the high priest. But here, what you need to understand is, this man was once in charge. Historians say he was cruel. He was dishonest. He was malignant. He was, 
He was the kind of person, he's just like, we don't want to be around this guy. He's a religious leader. And they first bring Jesus to him to sort of get the ball rolling here in this, what some people call kangaroo court, right? Second hearing was before Caiaphas. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. We'll come back to John. But Matthew 26, starting in verse 57, it says, Then the people who had arrested Jesus had led him to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the religious law and the elders had gathered. Meanwhile, Peter followed him at a distance and came to the high priest's courtyard. He went in, sat with the guards, waited to see how it would all end. Verse 59. Inside... The leading priests and the entire high council were trying to find witnesses who would lie about Jesus so they could put him to death. But even though they found many who agreed to give false witnesses, they could not use anyone's testimony. Finally, two men came forward who declared, This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I demand in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Verse 64, Jesus replied, You said it, and in the future you will see the Son of Man seated in a place of power, God's right hand, coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, Blasphemy. Why do we need other witnesses? You've all heard it. Blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they shouted. He deserves to die. Then they began to spit in Jesus' face and beat him with their fists. Some slapped him, jeering, prophesied to us, you Messiah, who hit you that time? Now, you look at this here and you think about, were they at the proper place, at the proper time, holding the court situation here, a trial, like supposedly is said in their rules. The answer to that is no. This was, a, this was a high council. This was a, basically the most religious political party that was out there that handled any kind of case, any kind of situation. It was brought to them to handle all disputes. They couldn't find any witnesses, however, to condemn Jesus. They tried to make up stories and distort the stories and change things up. And then they claimed the, they had against Jesus was about destroying a temple and rebuilding it in three days. That was from John chapter 2, verse 19. Had nothing to do with a physical temple. Jesus was talking about his own body. They asked Jesus, are you the Messiah? Which he agreed to the question. Are you the Messiah? Well, yeah, I am. What's wrong with telling the truth there? Because he is the Messiah. But instead of further investigation, like, oh, so you claim to be the Messiah, let's check out the prophecies. Let's unroll the script of Isaiah and let's, let's, let's see here if we can relay things and mash things up and let's check what he is saying. None of that. They just went right to the death sentence. Because see, here's what's going on. Ahead of time, they already made their decision to kill Jesus. This was already in the plans. We're going to kill Jesus and then let's have all the trials to figure out how we can condemn him. Now, if you notice his answer, what I thought was very unique, Jesus said, um, he said, let's go back to the scripture. He said, in the future, you'll see the Son of Man seated in the place of honor at the power of God's right hand. I think what's 
pretty incredible here is Jesus says, oh, by the way, I'm going to be the one sitting at God's right hand making the judgment call, and yet you guys have put yourself in a position of authority trying to make a judgment against the Son of Man. Sort of ironic how they see it and how it is actually going to be. The crime here, as they claim, was blasphemy, which is the sin of claiming to be God. Anybody know who Jesus is? He is the Son of God. He is God, right? So again, what they call blasphemy was really actually truth. So what happens next is a third trial. Now this is going to be in front of the high council. Again, various scriptures, Matthew, Mark, and Luke cover this. It's a final assembly, basically, of let's get together, men. Let's get all of our stories lined up. Because if we're going to take Jesus and put him to death, we got to make sure all of our false stories match. So let's make sure we're, we're set. So they bring everybody together. They go through all this. And here's the incredible thing. I want to show you seven laws that they broke. Seven laws. Here's the first one. All criminal trials must begin and end in the daylight. When were they meeting? At night, right? Well, they broke that one. Only decisions made in the official meeting place were valid. Did they not go to the home of Caiaphas? Broke that one. Criminal cases could not be tried during the Passover season. Well, it's the Passover. Broke that one. Only an acquittal could be issued on the day of the trial. Guilty verdicts had to wait one night to allow for feelings of mercy to rise. They didn't wait on that one. There's the fourth one broken. Here's the fifth one. All evidence had to be guaranteed by two witnesses who were separately examined and could not have contact with each other. Remember, the two men came together with their story to try to give false witness. Six, false witness was punishable by death. Now, all those people that came in with their false stories, did they put to death? We don't know. But as far as we know, they were like, oh, man, it didn't, didn't line up. Sorry, you can't use your story. It was a good one, though. Last one, a trial always began by bringing forth evidence for the innocence of the accused before the evidence of guilt was offered. They didn't even bring any evidence of innocence. It was all he's guilty because. Seven laws were broken. Oh, by the way, you know where those seven laws come from? From the same religious leaders, the laws of the Sanhedrin. These were their very own laws. They broke their own laws. You know why? Because they all had one thing in mind. We just want to kill Jesus. So with all these laws broken, now they go before Pilate. Why Pilate? Pilate is Roman authority. In this land in which they are living at the time, even though these religious leaders felt they had all the power in the world, they couldn't put anybody to death without the Roman authority giving the okay. So let's go to Pilate. We're going to go back to the book of John, chapter 18. John chapter 18, and in verse... We'll start in verse 28. Verse 28. Jesus' trial before Caiaphas ended in the early hours of the morning. Then he was taken to the headquarters of the Roman emperor. His accusers didn't go inside because it would defile them. Well, now they're being all righteous. They wouldn't be allowed to celebrate the Passover. So Pilate, the governor, went out to them and asked, what is your charge against this man? Now I'm going to Keep your Bibles there in John. I'm going to skip to Luke, because in Luke, you want to know what the accusations were? In the book of Luke, it says they began to state their case. This man has been leading our people astray by telling them not to pay their taxes to the Roman government and by claiming he is Messiah, a king. So those were some of the accusations that they brought. Let's go back to the book of John, chapter 18, verse 30. 
And we pick up in verse 30, he says, We wouldn't have handed him over to you if he weren't a criminal, they retorted. Then take him away, judge him by your own law, Pilate said. Only the Romans are permitted to execute someone, the Jewish leaders replied, which fulfilled the Jesus' prediction about the way he would die. Then Pilate went back into the headquarters, called for Jesus to be brought to him. Are you the king of the Jews, he asked them. Jesus replied, is this your own question or did others tell you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate retorted. Your own people and their leading priests brought you to me for trial. Why? What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate said, so you are a king. Jesus responded, you say I'm a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. See, Pilate knew what to do. Because he's a free man. There's nothing, nothing guilty about this man that he is speaking to, this Jesus. And he knows what he's supposed to do. But yet he's like, oh, oh wait, you're from Herod's district. You're, you're Galilean. So let's send you over to Herod. Talk to him. Um, so... I don't have to take all the guilt on myself. I'll share it with Herod. So we go to different scripture uh, where he is now taken to Herod in Luke 23. I'll read that to you. Herod was delighted at the opportunity to see Jesus because he heard about him. He had been hoping for a long time to see Jesus perform a miracle. He asked Jesus question after question. Jesus refused to answer. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law stood there shouting their accusations. Then Herod and his soldiers began mocking and ridiculing Jesus. Finally, they put a royal robe on him, sent him back to Pilate. Herod and Pilate, who had been enemies before, uh, became friends that day. Wow, what do we learn? Well, first of all, Herod was, had heard so much about Jesus. He couldn't wait to meet this Jesus. So he welcomed him. Yeah, bring Jesus on in. I want, I want to meet him. Hey, Jesus, uh, can you perform something for me? Can you do a miracle? I've heard a lot of stories about you, but yet Jesus did nothing. He said nothing. Can you blame Jesus? Jesus is standing before the man who beheaded, who murdered John the Baptist, his cousin. Here's the man that's responsible for the death of somebody so close to you. Jesus wasn't going to say anything anyway, even if he wanted to. Herod had enough, made fun of him, sent him back to Pilate. So we go back now to the book of Matthew, chapter 27. He comes before Pilate. And in Matthew, chapter 27, verse 15, we read this. Now it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner to the crowd, anyone they wanted. This year there was a notorious prisoner, a man named Barabbas. As the crowds gathered before Pilate's house that morning, he asked, which one do you want me to release, Barabbas or Jesus, who's called the Messiah? He knew very well that the religious leaders had arrested Jesus out of envy. It's, it's obvious, right? So just as we read in verse 19, Pilate is sitting at the judgment seat. Just as this happens, his wife sends this message. So you can imagine, hey, who do you want me to release, Barabbas or Jesus? All of a sudden, this message comes from his wife. Leave that innocent man alone. I suffered through a terrible nightmare about him last night. Meanwhile, the leading priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask Barabbas to be released for Jesus to be put to death. So it's like, hey, your wife said, don't put him to death. She couldn't sleep last night. 
Leave this innocent man alone. Meanwhile, they're stirring it up. The crowd, let's get Barabbas, Barabbas. Everybody say Barabbas. Make sure you say Barabbas. If you say Barabbas, you're out, right? Okay, so everything's going on and a lot of commotion's going on. So look what happens again, verse 21. The governor asked again, which of these two do you want me to release? And the crowd shouted back, Barabbas. Pilate responded, then what should I do with Jesus who you call the Messiah? They shouted back, crucify him. Mm. Why? Pilate demanded. What crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder. Crucify him. Do you remember just days before? We call it Palm Sunday. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Hosanna. Hosanna the king on the highest. Now are they yelling? Something totally different. Pilate saw he wasn't getting anywhere. And that a riot was developing. So he sent for a bowl of water. Washed his hands before the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours. And all the people yelled back, we'll take the responsibility for his death and our children. So Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. And they turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. A death sentence had to be approved by the Roman officials. And here it is. It was official. He was now going to be crucified. Pilate's relationship with the Jews had always been challenging. There was times when the, the city would be in an uproar, and Pilate knew, if I can't control the conflict and the chaos here, I will probably lose my position, which means I lose my power, I lose my money. So i got to make sure the crowd's happy. So he gives into a little bit of peer pressure, right? And he started thinking about all this moment of these, what Jesus went through. Why did Jesus have to go through these trials? This is a challenging moment to be sit there and again, you're being falsely accused. People are making fun of you. They spit in your face. They've punched you. They put on a royal robe on you to make you feel like, oh, you're the king. So wear a king's robe, right? Why, why the trials? And when you consider it all, you know, you, you, like I said, we've, we've not even gotten to the part with all the beating. Up to this point, a lot of it's been emotional. There was some slapping going on, but it's going to get worse. We haven't got to the part that makes us want to cringe. The scourging, the flesh being ripped off, the cross. We don't, we don't want to talk about that, right? We're not even there yet. But what we have seen so far, we can all relate to. Many of us have been misjudged. We've been falsely accused. We've been talked about in a way that really hurts. We've maybe had a good friend turn on us, betray us, stab us in the back. We've, we've been abandoned. We've been left alone. We, up to this point in time, we can say, I can relate to what Jesus has gone through in some of these areas, right? We know that the end is near for Jesus, but for us, for some of us, we've gone through trials. Some of you are going through trials right now. Some of you will go through trials. You'll go through some hard times. You'll suffer. You'll face adversity. And you say, why do I have to experience this in my season of life? We all will. At some point in time, if you have not yet experienced any adversity in your life, you've never experienced suffering, we need to talk. I need to find out what is going on. You must walk on water too. Oh, wait. Jesus walked on water, but he suffered. He faced trials. We all do. None of us are exempt from that. And then I think about, couldn't God come up with a different script? I mean, couldn't he have written this in a way that Salvation comes to mankind without all that Jesus went through. But again, maybe Jesus experienced all this so that we could understand 
how he looks at us and says, I get it. Because just as we face adversity, he did too. Looking in the mirror, I think we all want answers to the adversity we face, don't we? We wake up in the morning and say, why am I going through this? Why do we have to go through this? Why do my friends go through this? Why is a family going through this? And we, we want to know. And I guess on all this, we've got to ask a big question here. Do you trust God? If you're in here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've placed your faith in him, you say, oh, I believe in him. Do you trust him? Do you fully trust him? Do you trust God enough to help you in your times of adversity? Because if you can trust God, then you know there's a good reason behind the adversity. If you trust God, you're just like, I don't understand it, but I trust God. And so I know there's a reason behind it. I don't know what that reason is, but I trust him. You may have heard the story about a, a cocoon that had a butterfly in it. And it was somebody came along and they could see the cocoon wiggling and they could see it starting to open up. And they knew that that butterfly was trying to push its way out and push its way out. But it's like, boy, that butterfly is struggling. So maybe I can do something to help it. So he grabbed a pair of scissors and sort of snipped away at the bottom of the cocoon, sort of pulled it so that it would be easier for that butterfly to get out. Well, that butterfly got out, but it dropped out and its wings were shriveled and, and sickly and it died. See, what he didn't understand was that when butterflies are in cocoons, they push against the walls of the cocoon. They push and they push, and there's a process that's going on in the body of that, of that butterfly in which fluids are pushed to its wings to give it strength so that when it eventually busts out of the cocoon on its own, it is now strong enough to fly. And sometimes we do that in life. As a parent, it's very easy for me as a parent to say, I don't want my boys to go through a tough time, so I'm going to make it easier for them. You know what I just did? I just snipped a cocoon in my kid's life. So what happens is when a big adversity they face comes along, a struggle or challenge, guess what? They're not strong enough to handle it because I made it easier for them the first time and they were not developing themselves to handle the problem. And I think sometimes we want God to say, hey, God, make it easy. I mean, God's like, there's a reason behind this adversity. It's going to make you stronger. And someone's like, I don't want to be stronger. I just want to be free of pain, right? James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4 says this, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. And when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. See, trials of, of many kinds develop perseverance. Perseverance in our life develops, leads to maturity of character. We all know that, that God does not ask us when we want to grow. You realize that, right? God doesn't come to you and say, hey, would you like to grow in your life right now? Just checking. It, it isn't like if Jesus walked in here and he came up on stage and says, um, good morning, church. Um, I just want to let you know if, if you'd like an opportunity to grow, there's a clipboard in the back. It's out in the lobby. And you can sign up uh, Monday, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock. There's some slots on Tuesday that are available as well. So if you'd like to face some trials and some adversity and some chaos in your life, experience some pain, uh, please sign up because it's going to be your opportunity to grow. How many of you are like, oh, I can't wait to sign up on that clipboard? I don't think any of us in here is like, uh, I think I'll walk 10 feet around that one. I'm not going to go close to that clipboard. I, I don't need to sign up for the pain in my life, right? 
But here's the thing. God is the master teacher. We are his students. And he says, I want to help you in your life. I want you to grow stronger. I want to teach you something. He's the one who knows the best. And he knows how we can grow in our faith. I mean, what could God possibly be teaching us through our trials? There's a lot of things. I want to give you a few things. Uh, let me put them up on the screen here, and I'll, I'll go through them real quick. Uh, here's the thing, what we can learn. See, in adversity, here's one of the first things. There's a pruning process that can occur. You can find this in John chapter 15, verses 1 to 4. God will use adversity to uh, loosen our grip on the things that might be uh, not spiritually helpful in developing the fruit of the Spirit in our life. In other words, if something, in the pruning, if you go out to prune a tree or brand uh, or a, a bush or some flowers, you're going to cut away the dead stuff. You're pruning it, right? It's like, well, that's not going after it. And you cut away. But here's the thing. You also cut away sometimes the parts that are growing so that it become more fruitful. And sometimes some of you will say, you know, I've, I've noticed like if there's a branch that's pointing down, some of you are like, I also cut those off too because it's growing in a wrong direction. So there's a lot of pruning that takes place. And sometimes that's what God does in our life. He says, this is not producing any spiritual fruit in your life. I'm getting rid of it. And you know what? This is taking you in the wrong direction in your life. I'm getting rid of it. And here's some good things in your life, but they can be better. So I'm going to get rid of that as well. It's a pruning process as described in John chapter 15. Here's another thing about adversity. In adversity, we learn to depend on God. Sometimes God's going to teach us through adversity that we can't rely on ourselves and we can't rely on others. We've got to rely on God. Apart from our connection with Christ, we can do nothing. Again, John chapter 15, verses 5 to 8, talk about that. 2 Corinthians, there's a verse, I'll read this to you from. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, verses 8 and 9. He said, we think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. So in other words, he's like, hey, heads up, everybody. We experienced a lot of chaos and pain. I want you to know about it. We were crushed, overwhelmed, beyond our ability to endure. We thought... We would never live through it. They were to the point of death. Like, we're not going to make this. In fact, we expected to die. Listen to this next part. But as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely on God who raises the dead. Let me ask you, does uh, anybody in here have the power to make the blind see, the lame walk, take leprosy, wipe it right off somebody's skin? Did, you have, did anybody have that kind of healing power? Can you raise anybody from the dead? The answer to that is no. But I think we know somebody who does. And our God raises people from the dead. So why would I rely on myself who has no power instead I could rely upon God who has all power? In adversity, we learn to depend on God and not rely on our own help and the help of others. When I was on sabbatical three years ago and when I was out west hiking, 10 days, 10 trails on my own. As I'm hiking through all those trails, here's what developed. Fear. See, as I'm isolated on these trails, not knowing what's out there, not having stuff with me, I don't know what I'm going to face. I don't know what's going to come along. And then in the quietness, when things get really quiet and you turn off everything, TV, music, everything, and it's just you and God, do you also hear maybe sometimes a little challenging whispers like, hey, you're alone. Did you hear that in the bush? What if it's an animal? You have nobody to rescue you. What if, what if, what if, right? So fear is easy to develop. You know what I found in myself? I found myself on my sabbatical learning to depend on God more than anything else. So God, I need you now. God, help me in this moment. 
There's a lot of that that went on. And even when I'm not alone, even like on a Sunday morning, sometimes God will take the very thing that I, you feel confident in, that I feel confident in, and what he will do is he might challenge you in that area. I feel very confident in preaching. I do. But you know what? There are Sundays when I can walk off this platform and feel very lacking in my confidence. I can feel very insecure. I will maybe say something, I'll make a mistake, or I miss a point, and I'm thinking, oh, I forgot to say that. Oh, this, right? Sometimes God will take those very things that we feel so confident and say, see, you can't do that on your own. You need me. At the very front of my notes, I keep this in front of me. And it's basically seven things I ask myself before I preach on Sunday mornings. And it has nothing to do with me, but God. And one of them is, am I depending on the Holy Spirit's power or my own cleverness? Teach with power, right? Have I applied this own message to my life? Teach with integrity. And there's five others. But I've learned that even in the things I feel comfortable with, I still have to rely on God. Here's another thing about adversity. In adversity, we learn to persevere. Hebrews 12.1, you've probably remember this phrase in Hebrews 12.1, let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. By the way, that word race, the Greek word is agon, where we get our word agony. So for those of you that are in track, cross country, racing, you, that's why I don't. It's agony, right? But as Jesus says, or the writer says here, let us run the, with endurance the race, the agon that God has put before us. The Christian life is not like a long road or a short sprint, like here to there and I'm done. That was easy. And it's not a marathon either where it's like it's a long run. It's an obstacle course. There are walls. There's barbed wire fence. There's, there's rivers to forge. There's bushes and hedges to run through. I mean, the, the Christian life has all kinds of obstacles that come our way. And God reminds us, Run that race with endurance. Do not give up. I know it's hard. I get it. But keep running. In adversity, we learn to persevere. In adversity, we learn to serve others. 2 Corinthians 1.4 tells us that God comforts us in our troubles so we can comfort others. When we're going through adversity, God will give you the comfort you need. He'll give you the encouragement you need. And the amazing thing is, is that you are now equipped to take that comfort and care to others who then go through adversity. Some of you that have experienced pain and you've, you've gone through that season, you've come out on the other end, and now you see a friend, a church member, somebody else, a neighbor, it's like, man, they're going through what I went through. God's equipped you now to help somebody else. So you see, in adversity, you become equipped to serve others. And here's the fifth thing. In adversity, there's, there's fellowship in suffering. Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. A lot of us are like, it's my faith, I keep it private. Uh, although many people like to uh, claim the, that they can keep it to themselves, you can't. You can't. If you're part of the body of Christ, guess what? You are part of the body of Christ. I don't know how to further explain that. Uh, if you proclaim you don't, need to, you don't need the church, you're disobedient to God's word. How can you proclaim to be a Christian, be part of the body, if you don't want to be part of the body? That doesn't make sense to me. You're like a toupee on a bald man, okay? You're trying to fit in. You're just not connected, okay? And the first time a strong wind and adversity hits you, you're gone. You know what I'm saying? 
I mean, that's just the way it is. The body of Christ is made up of many believers, all shapes, sizes, forms, and we are part of the body. And in adversity, we learn to fellowship as one. It's an amazing thing. There's no question. Adversity is difficult, and sometimes it takes us by surprise. We don't expect it. Nobody planned it out. You know, I pulled out my phone. I was, I was going to look and see what I got on the schedule for tomorrow, and I'm looking, and let's see. Tomorrow... There's a couple of birthdays on there, some people I know, a couple of meetings. I don't see anywhere, and it says adversity striking, chaos coming your way, problems about to develop. It's, it, we don't plan it. It just sort of happens, right? But here's the thing I know. There's purpose in everything, and I trust God, and I want to encourage you to trust God as well through this. When we look at the story of Jesus, and we see the corruption of these trials, it's just not fair, right? It's just not fair. And I think all of us in our own personal lives, we'd say when adversity strikes, we say, it's not fair. God gets it. Lamentations 3, 31 to 33 says this, for no one is abandoned by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he also brings compassion because of the greatness of his unfailing love. Listen to this. He does not enjoy hurting people or causing them sorrow. So if you think God's like, I'm doing this to get at you, your thoughts are going against what God's word states. He doesn't enjoy that. There's purpose behind it. Trust God. He allows only which is necessary to help us grow. Worship team, would you come forward, please? I want to challenge you these two things. In the midst of adversity and trials, trust God. Submit to God. And when I say submit to God, I'm not saying be a floor mat for people to step on. I'm not saying like, oh, you know what? Um, I, I think this whole submission thing maybe sounds sort of abusive. What does it mean to submit to God? Jerry Bridges in his book, Trusting God, has this quote. I want to put it up on the screen. I think it's uh, very helpful. He says this. To submit is to voluntarily Place yourself upon the operating table and allow the skilled hands of a surgeon to operate on your body. Just as we trust somebody who is superior in skill and thought to work on our bodies, in the same way, when we submit to God, we're trusting God who is superior to operate in our lives. When you are facing trials and situations, in that moment, it's like this. I'm just going to put myself on the operating table and say, God, have your way with me. I would like to, in my own pride, say, hey, here's what I think should happen. That's like, again, me there laying on the operating table, and I've been there many times, looking over at the doctor saying, hey, you know what I think you ought to do? Why don't you grab the scalpel, and, and instead of that one incision you're going to make, I'm, I've got a better idea, okay? That's foolish. I would never tell a skilled surgeon what I think they should do to help me get better, and I should never tell a mighty God, what he should do to make my life better. Submitting is laying down on that table and saying, God, I trust you. Have your way in me. Help me through this troubling time. Trust him. Submit to him. Would you stand, please? You know, I, I was in uh, high school, and it was my senior year, and my friends and I we were going to go sledding. So we load up in the car, and we zip down the road, and it's a 35-mile power speed limit. And we're going 35. And there's a cop car. And it's like, hey, 35, drove by. 
got to the hill, dropped everybody off, realized forgot something, went back to go get it as I drove by, but 35. Hey, what's up? On the way back, 44. Hey, he's pulling me over. You would have thought, after going by once, after going by twice, the third time, I would have learned something that he's still sitting there and he still wants me to go 35, but I chose to not pay attention. I, I didn't learn the first, you know, the first time, second time, I didn't learn you think I would have learned from, and I've often been told when it comes to, to problems and injuries and trials in your life, man, God's teaching you a lesson. You ever heard that before? Have you ever been on the receiving end of one of those? It's like, hey, you're, God's teaching you a lesson. I'm like, I've learned enough lessons. I've, I, it's like God's given me a diploma, my Bachelor of Arts, my Master's, my MDiv, my Doctoral. I feel like God has taught me so many lessons, I'm probably the most qualified to tell you about pain, right? Do you ever feel that way? If you have, Jesus understands. He loves you. He embraces you and he says, I get it. Been there. Trust him. Submit to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing God you are. Thank you, Lord, for your love. I thank you that you want to help us through the tough times in our life. I pray now, Lord, that whatever those struggles are that some of us, we have right now, we even brought them with us to church today carried them in our back pockets. We, we, we put them into our, our hearts and our minds and been maybe even having a hard time singing and worshiping because our problems are right here with us. So God, while we're here, we're just going to give them to you. How convenient, God, that we could, we could bring our problems with us and we're just going to give them to you. We want to trust you, God. We want to submit to you. We want to just put ourselves out there right now and just say, Operate on me, God. Get it out of me. I'm sorry. Forgive me for thinking I can do this myself, that I could I could rely on my own strength. I can't anymore. Help us to humbly admit that to you right now in prayer. Help us to humbly admit that we need you. Thank you for understanding that you went through all of that just to free us from sin to give us opportunity to be in your presence for eternity. Thank you. So God, with whatever we're dealing with right now, we give it to you. We trust you that you can take care of it. You are big enough. You are God. We love you. In thy name we pray. Amen.